that's the takeaway message, you know, expect wildlife. And so if we're expecting wildlife, you know, or in this case, <laughs> cougars, you know, what, what obligations do we have? And the obligation we have is if we're going to expect wildlife, then we have an obligation to be informed. This is Defender Radio. Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind you that we're doing another t-shirt giveaway. All you have to do is review the show on iTunes, take a screen grab of that, and send it over to me. I'll randomly choose someone from those who enter, and you'll get a shirt. You can use an old review you've already done or leave a new one if you haven't done one yet. As long as you live in North America, you're eligible to win. Cougars have been in the news recently, particularly in British Columbia. Conflict with Canada's big cats isn't overly common. But when cougars end up in communities, lethal action seems to be the first response. Now, I personally know next to nothing about cougars, and that's why I called up Bryce Cassavant. Bryce is the former conservation officer who made international headlines when he refused orders to kill two healthy bear cubs. Educating residents on safely coexisting with wildlife remains a passion of his, as he writes on his own blog and is frequently contacted by media to serve as an expert source. He joined Defender Radio to discuss who cougars are, how to distinguish between sensationalism and fact, and what we can all do to promote coexistence with cougars and other wildlife across Canada. Let's talk about cougars big picture right now. My understanding is there are, I think, three or four types of big cats in North America. And cougars, who go by a number of names, are one of them. Uh, So could you explain maybe who cougars are and what sets them apart from other big cats in North America? Well, the, the cougar, like you've identified, it does go by quite a few different names mountain lion puma cougar uh cat kitty depending on where you are and they roam all through north and south america but they have been extirpated from parts of southern california florida and other areas, including here in British Columbia, where large municipalities and cities have been established. But their traditional range is throughout North, uh, Central, and South America. However, there are distinguishing features, although a um, black cougar would be called a panther in in South America. Um, Biologically and genetically, they're virtually the same. In fact, even in North America, you can have um, black cougars or melanic um, cougars, as they would be called. It's the reverse of an albino. <laughs> and there are still uh, black panthers <laughs> that are actually cougars that have been spotted uh, here in North America as well. So is that kind of like the difference between a black lab and a chocolate lab? It's like they're virtually the same dog, but they've got the, just that little bit of DNA coding that sets the color up differently. Yeah, there's some genetics and um, and genes that get carried over in breeding. I think uh, a more apt example would be the spirit bear in British Columbia. We have white black bears um, yep. and black bears that carry the spirit bear gene. 
And so that would be a good example. However, in cougars, it's um, instead of white or this albino type of um, uh, gene that is is seen in various animals, it's actually reversed. It's melanic. It's black. Good to know. And that, I think, also helps explain how little I know about cougars. Um, Obviously, in Ontario, you know, there's discussion about whether cougars are still around but they're they're not a part of life for much of Ontario, especially southern Ontario, where I am. Unlike you know black bears, coyotes, uh, even wolves, you don't have to go too far to find from where I am. Cougars, though, are kind of a different beast, so to speak. Um, I should say, <laughs> cougars are different in that they're simply not around here. And when I'm reading all of the stuff going on out west about cougars, it gets very overwhelming trying to determine what is fact, what is fiction, what is going on, period, because I know so little. And the problem is I don't know what I don't know when it comes to cougars. There's a lot of, uh, just in wildlife management generally, there is a lot of myth and misconception in populations and numbers and also in sightings. And unfortunately, Uh, Population estimates uh, in British Columbia uh, here, they are partially based on anecdotal information, you know, what people see, what people think and feel, not necessarily on hard um, scientific fact. And for cougars especially, um, that is problematic because in BC, I can't tell you how many times as a conservation officer I have gone to a loose air quotations here, cougar sighting where somebody's afraid for their life. And it was the rear end of a black tailed deer that they were looking at, not mm-hmm. a cougar, or it was a house cat or a dog that had gone across the street quickly and they caught a flash and assumed it was a cougar because they were out jogging and felt afraid. Now, one of, so just because people feel that there are a lot or, um, there's a rumor that sightings have increased in the last 10 years and therefore populations are exploding. And we have the highest, another phrase here, we have the highest density of cougars on Vancouver Island than anywhere else in North America. This is just completely unfounded. It's hmm. fiction. And uh, there hasn't been, um, there hasn't been a quantitative scientific study on population estimates for this apex predator species. And what we do know is that the cougar has been extirpated from uh, parts of BC. We are fortunate to still have this species within British Columbia, but establishing uh, population estimates on anecdotal information and sightings many of times, which are flawed sightings, um, is very unwise. So, yeah, living with um, cougars is an interesting discussion and establishing what those populations are within our communities is an area of wildlife science that just hasn't been explored to its fullest potential here in BC or in other parts of North America. Los Angeles, an interesting case study, um, used to have uh, mountain lions, cougars, quite prevalent. Mm-hmm. And 
unfortunately, they went through a drastic population decline to the point now where they are actually um, have redesigned their roads and put in wildlife corridors just for the cougar to help uh, prevent it from from going extinct. And they do uh, rescue and relocate um, cougars down there now as well. Their fish and wildlife uh, officers do. So this concept that um, Cougars need to be destroyed because they're a predator and a public safety risk, and, and that seems to be our approach here in BC. I think there are other case studies um, coupled with uh, a good hard look at what we don't know and what we haven't done for our population estimates, which could suggest that there's maybe a different way to be approaching the concept of living with cougars and understanding more about the species. It is interesting when we talk about population numbers. And a quick uh, aside, I just looked it up, and mountain lions are endangered in Ontario. Um, so they they may be here, but they uh, are not common by any threat, uh, any stretch. Um, just what's interesting when we talk about population is how much that should play into how we manage habitat and consumptive use and coexistence policy and all of these other things. Yet it's it's very, very frequent, it seems, that we don't have, and I, I know we can't have exact numbers, but we don't even have really that great of an estimate based on any models. Uh, a big criticism during the grizzly bear trophy hunt uh, debate that came out, I know you made this criticism, I know Rancos Conservation's scientists made this criticism, and the Auditor General's report made this criticisms, was that they were ignoring or not fully using models and instead sort of doing expert guesses, which is a little disconcerting when we realize the implications of management decisions. So how would we go about finding out how many cougars there are? And as a sort of follow-up to that, does it matter how many cougars there are when we talk about day-to-day -day living with cougars? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that's, that's a great question. And I think there's there's two sort of sides to that. Living day-to-day, -day, living with cougars includes, um, there's many facets to that. There is, you know, that passive living with wildlife generally in our communities, but there are individuals within our society who hunt. And hunting is a legal activity uh, in the province of BC, as it is in most provinces. And in BC, it is legal to buy a cougar tag and, and hunt a cougar. So when we talk about living with cougars and understanding uh, populations, it's not just about uh, human-wildlife coexistence, but it is also understanding that a portion of living with wildlife is understanding this regulated demographic of society that also hunts these species. So population... Um, estimates are important just not just from a um, an allocation of um, hunting allotments and ensuring that uh, we're not contributing to um, a population decline but also in understanding uh, wildlife corridors through fairs to our communities and where we should be putting resources into public education. I think uh, another way to say that would be if there are no cougars in one community, 
would you put your um, finances and public edu education resources into that community if you only have limited amount of dollars or based on a scientific approach to understanding populations and communities that interact with Cougars, would you rather put your money and resources into public education and awareness initiatives in those communities? So understanding um, population dem demographics for um, the cougar is important, not just from a hunting standpoint, but also from a wildlife coexistence and living with wildlife standpoint. You forget that we have to consider resource allocation in that way sometimes. Uh, and that's why we have people like you around. Um, there has been a lot of talk about cougars in the media in BC, uh, primarily BC, I'd say, a bit in Washington, a bit in Alberta, uh, and then, of course, some on the national level from all of this. But in Port Coquitlam, there was a few cougars killed uh, by conservation officers. Um, there are articles about an expectation of increased conflict or encounters. Uh, there was an attack in Washington state. When we talk about all of this stuff, as I've said, I feel I am very unequipped for it because when we talk about coyotes and bears and wolves and uh, raccoons and all of these other animals, I have a core enough understanding of their behavior to read the article and say, nope, that was defensive. Just from the article, not even being in the, in the province, I can get a, a, a sort of an idea as to what was going on. You know, I wrote about uh, uh, beavers attacking a dog the other day. This one was, I don't know if you saw that blog, I'll send it to you. Uh, but a dog ran into a river and probably ran over a beaver lodge and the beavers turned around and chased him off. And the headline is dog survives beaver attack. Right. And it's kind of like, ah, well, you know, I don't think that's quite true. But with cougars, I read about some of these incidents and I'm not talking about the very, very passive ones, but where there is an encounter and I just have no idea. Uh, so what do we know about cougars and their interactions with people? I mean, is it as sure. sort of broad sure. as it is with other animals or are they, you know, the apex predator we're told to fear? Yeah. Um, nice, big, open question. I think I you. would first, yeah, I would first say that it is very unfortunate that these conversations in the media are you you know and even this podcast for that matter are usually on the tail end of some form of tragedy tragedy or injury to a human mm -hmm. and it makes the conversation very difficult because my heart goes out to the family and friends of this individual in, in Washington who uh, lost his life due to his uh, negative encounter with a cougar. And it makes the conversation difficult because there is a place for compassion and empathy. And um, it, it can be hard to talk about species conservation and coexistence with uh, wildlife generally when there has been an unfortunate event like the one that occurred in Washington. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, um, I do believe that these conversations are important. So while I definitely have compassion and empathy for the situation that has occurred, 
And uh, while my heart goes out to the family and friends of um, this young man who lost his life, I think the question more broadly is, can we be doing a better job at public education and awareness at the forefront? Is this concept of living with wildlife and recreating in the outdoors, are we doing enough as government and as society to understand the species that are uh, in the landscape that we live in, that we recreate in, and do we have the information we need to be fully informed before we buy a house in a new community or go out and recreate in the outdoors, um, especially now with the summer approaching? And I think the answer is um, we can be doing a better job uh, in this area as a government and as, uh, as a people. Uh, the, as an example, the, sa the Government Safety Guide uh, to Cougars here in BC is from 1996. It's publicly available, but it's kind of buried in government documentation. And we haven't updated it, and we should. Uh, so there are, there are a wide variety of um, approaches to, to assisting the public in, in understanding more about the species, but also in making sure that the information we do have is readily available for use. And I don't know that it, it is. And so I think this is one lesson learned, and it seems to happen every year, where we can be doing a better job at proactive uh, community outreach on some of these issues. I don't think anyone will disagree with that, regardless of species. Uh, this time of year, we, well, a little earlier than this, we start seeing the news pop up. Uh, at the fur bears, as you know, we start getting the, mm -hmm. I saw a coyote in a, forests therefore the end of time is coming um and it is difficult to year after year go through this process but we have to and i, I mm -hmm. absolutely agree that we need to put this education at the forefront when we're talking about cougars um let's talk a bit about sort of general coexistence i is is it as simple as it is with coyotes and bears of put away attractants and be big and scary or is there more involved are cougars there is more involved yeah okay there is more involved and it's because of the fear uh there's a social fear surrounding any any form of um species human or not for that matter but species that are elusive that have myth and legend sort of attached to them and the cougar is one of them you don't most people go through their life without ever encountering or seeing a cougar. They are an elusive creature by their nature. And so that for centuries, that elusiveness, um, coupled with their ability, coupled, you know, that elusiveness coupled with the ability that they're stealthy, that they're muscular, that they are a predator. It, it does, for some reason, have a different, um, a different understanding subconsciously in the minds of most people living in communities that interact with the cooter. You know, it would be normal for somebody, if they saw a bear, to, you know, want to see it. You, you don't have an inherent sense of fear of a bear, necessarily speaking, uh, you know, a black bear in a park or something like that, maybe a grizzly. But, but a, a cougar, there is, an, there is an inherent, 
there seems to be an inherent sense of fear with any sighting or any sort of encounter, positive or negative. So the, when we talk about education and coexistence and living with cougars, we do have to deal with that aspect of um, a little bit of a heightened sense of fear that unfortunately the media also grabs onto when there is um, sightings or pets are hurt or like in this case, um, uh, an individual was, uh, there was a, a fatal encounter. And the old media saying, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead, is, is sort of rings very true uh, for interact, interactions with cougars, where because of that uh, elusiveness coupled with their capability, it is easy to make a story um, where the undertone is fear within the story. Mm-hmm. And so one of the uh, approaches that I took as a conservation officer in the North Island was to try to reshape that concept of fear around these species. And in my conversations with um, the media and the general public, my messaging was expect the cougar. This is what they look like. <laughs> this is their tail size. This is their range. Here is a corridor. If you're walking, expect a cougar on these trail systems, and here's why. Uh, here is their natural prey. So if you see black-tailed deer and a trail and there's cover, expect that there could be a cougar nearby. You know, and these, this type of expectation management uh, becomes important for managing public fear when they do uh, encounter or um, or spot or have a sighting of a cougar. And unfortunately, we don't do uh, a lot of that. It's almost to the reverse where we feed the fear instead of managing the expectation of uh, encounter. And so I think there's some work to do um, in that area. The words you're using, and I don't know if you and I have talked about this or if you've heard about or talked about this at all or read about it, but it is very akin to how we talk about normalizing discussions about mental health or about other issues mm. that have been long taboo to talk about in public. It's, we have to just literally just sort of talk about it, bring it up, make it part of everyday life that these things are around us. And the, it's it's just interesting to me how that crossover happens when we talk about this fear of an animal um, that is, you know, belongs just as much as we do, that we can coexist with that there is that comparable language when we're talking about other things that we're generally uncomfortable with. Um, One of the criticisms that, um, that uh, I I have personally received is, um, is that uh, it's taken, I'm suggesting people shouldn't call for help when they feel afraid. And, And that couldn't be farther from the truth, but I think an unhealthy fear and an unrealistic fear is is unwise and there is a balance and there is a difference between being afraid because you were in your car and saw something on the side of the road and feel you need to call somebody for a response and being out in in the wilderness ill prepared and having an encounter that was negative or that resulted in a need to phone for assistance and they're two they're two completely different um in the sphere of fear, they are two completely different mm-hmm. situations. One 
is a form of rational fear and one is a form of not rational fear. Absolutely. And in this province, in this province, we have a lot of irrational fear. We have people who call for help and, you know, call the, we call it the rap line, but it's equivalent to 911 for assistance from an armed conservation officer where it is merely a sighting and they are in a car. And so this, the, the, it, it's not just, uh, it's not just from a social science standpoint where it's really unhealthy to live in perpetual fear within your community because of a lack of understanding of another species that also lives uh, in and around that community. But there's also a hard cost to it. So if we come down to the question of why should we care, it's not just about um, living and coexisting with wildlife. There is actually hard numbers that can be assigned to this. If we have individuals in our communities that are living with an irrational fear of other species that share the landscape, this results in hard costs to the taxpayer. These people are phoning for help. We have call centers that take these calls. They generate reports. They send the reports out. The officer then responds either physically in person or over the phone. There's these are tens of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars probably that gets tied up in, in issues management where there really is no issue. And so, you know, that proactive outreach uh, about shaping those conversations about living with wildlife and coexisting with wildlife and managing that expectation and assisting uh, not just our, ourselves and our members of the public, but also our government and our elected officials in building knowledge around who else shares this landscape and why and what to expect becomes critically important, again, not just from a social perspective, but also from a good fiscal responsibility perspective as well. It's, again, that comes back to that whole resource management and allocation issue um, that I, I think when we talk about some of these issues, whether it is a cougar in British Columbia or a coyote in downtown Toronto, we have to be aware that the way we respond is limited to a degree. Like there's a high end and a low end of what we can do. And they cost money and they have an impact on perception. For example, if every time someone in my city, Hamilton, saw a raccoon, they called the police. It would cost, it would cost us millions of dollars. Even though I can't think of a single time you would need to call the police when you see a raccoon. I'd say arguably the same is true in Toronto with uh, coyotes. And uh, just outside of Toronto when they see black bears. Uh, that's, you know, okay, well, we have a process for dealing with this and we all get together and say, bear, go away and move on with life. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's just remembering that when we have these discussions to have this sort of, we can't just say, oh, there's no problem. But we also can't say that, yes, throw all the resources at the problem. Yeah, we need to, we need to get to a place where A, it's okay to talk about these issues in our uh, communities and B, it is okay to set some boundaries around expectation management and response allocation, resource allocation. No, I don't mean wildlife resources or, mm -hmm. or uh, natural resources. I mean re like hard resources, people, government, <laughs> officers, equipment, things like this. So managing public expectations on if you have a sighting, here's the type of response to expect. 
So if you're not in danger, don't phone. Yeah. Is probably a good place to start the conversation. And I, and I know this isn't unique to um, wildlife uh, law enforcement or uh, human wildlife coexistence issues. Um, in BC, our 911 call centers are going through a, um, a public uh, education campaign um, telling people not to phone 911. <laughs> we spent decades telling people to phone 911. Mm-hmm. Now we've got to a place where we got to go back to the drawing board and be like, hey, wait a second. When we call phone, when we say phone 911, here's what we need. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, because so many uh, calls come through the emergency line that aren't emergencies. And it bogs down the uh, not just the the system that's in place, but also it it restricts the triage of these issues to the point where now officers aren't police officers aren't actually able to respond to actual emergencies uh, in time because they're over here dealing with something else that wasn't an emergency. So. So there's this isn't unique, but to this isn't a unique situation to um, wildlife um, coexistence issues. But it is important to note, and there are things that each one of us can do to help that process along. And being informed and being aware is uh, a good place to start. Putting the onus on the individual to um, gather the information. Uh, themselves and be seek out the information on other species that live within your community and their behaviors and what to expect and why and how to be properly prepared um, when you are recreating outdoors uh, and that's from the individual side in the community and then on the government side making sure that information is readily and easily available is where the government can be doing more work so when we start painting this picture, it is very much interconnected between the individual community member making an effort of their own accord to be informed, and then also the responsibility of government to ensure that when those individuals are making that effort, the information is readily and easily accessible. And I think that's a great spot for us to sort of go into two areas that I want to cover before we wrap up today. Uh, one of them is talking about the recreation. So people who are out on a trail, uh, I feel that's sort of one area where we need to talk about what to do, what to expect. And the other is when you're in a residential area. So one of the cases that has been in the media, and again, it gets picked up by a wire service, so it's all over the country, is uh, cougar showing aggressive behavior in a community. They attacked some domestic cats and had an encounter with at least one dog. Um and that is from the news article. Now, I don't, as I have said repeatedly, I don't know a lot about cougars or, or much of anything. But when I see attack some domestic cats, I don't imagine that they knocked on the door, opened the door, went inside, uh, picked up the cat, carried the cat outside and ate it. Uh, I am guessing that these were outdoor cats. I think that's a fair assumption. Um, and same with the dog. And when we deal with this with coyotes and bears, my response is always, I'm very, very sorry. I am a pet lover. I have dogs in my life. I would be devastated. However, mm-hmm. the prevention of this is really, really, really simple. Uh, is it the same it, situation? Well, it's a, it's slightly different. So uh, cougars have a little bit of um, uh, a cannibalistic uh, behavior. They will eat other felines. Mm-hmm. 
um, both from within their uh, within their species and subspecies of, of feline, like feral house cats, as an example. So, um, unattended small pets, specifically feral cats, are an attractant for cougars at, okay. on the urban interface between green spaces and where people live. And they, however, the fact a cougar is is hunting in that area and preying upon that. Um, pet, for lack of a feral, feral house cat, is actually a sign of something uh, much more serious because it's not the first natural prey for a cougar. So here on the island, as an example, a, a cougar's primary uh, prey source is black-tailed deer. Mm-hmm. So the hunting of pets within the urban interface um, is actually opportunistic hunting. It's not uh, primary um, it's not primary prey uh, hunting. So in, in this behavior, there's, there's a couple of reasons why that happens. One is strictly opportunistic and because of where the community is located on the outskirts of a ma- major um, city in a rural area, it can, it can simply be that the, the animal is, is hungry and traveling through and this is an opportunity. But typically, uh, it it's not opportunistic in that way. Typically what's happening is there's been a decline in the availability of natural prey on the landscape. And as a result of uh, competition for remaining food sources and also competition for ter- territory, the, the animal ends up closer and closer to the urban interface until they begin engaging in opportunistic hunting. And at that point, they are, they are usually or can be quite uh, malnourished and, and hungry. So when we talk about population estimates and wildlife management more um, broadly, everything we do on the land base when we try to play God with wildlife and, quote, manage wildlife, has trickle-down effects to the point where we can actually be having public safety risks because of something we're doing with black-tailed deer in a completely unrelated matter from a management perspective. So with with cougars, the behavior of hunting pets is is typically opportunistic and a sign that um, from an ecological perspective, there are issues with the availability of natural prey in the territory of that animal. And I imagine that it's also time to clean up your backyard if if you're seeing that. Exactly. Because... So so where would that animal go if it didn't have access to that opportunistic hunting? And the answer is it wouldn't stay because it's hungry. So attractant management and becomes very important when we talk about our coexisting and living with these species. And and cougars, cougars specifically. So no, it's not okay to have 30 cats in your house and just let them wander in and out the back doors if you're living in cougar country, because that is an attractant. And if there is a an issue with um, natural prey or a decline in natural prey and that animal's hungry and then gets rewarded, it will stay until that opportunistic um, or those hunting opportunities are no longer available. And that usually results in public complaints and the animal being destroyed by government officers. So our actions have a direct effect in the conservation of each and every animal. I'm curious about 
children and cougars. This is something that comes up a lot. And I think you're a unique position to answer as the father of a young child and yeah. as someone who has experience with sort of the various sides of this. Is there a particular mm-hmm. concern with cougars, mountain lions, what have you, and children? Or is it more or less the same concern you have with any wildlife and little children, which comes down to making sure they know the basics and sort of being a responsible parent? Yeah, it's um, there is a difference. Now, when we talk about um, educating our children and being properly prepared, I have a five-year-old daughter, so I I go through this myself Mm -hmm. (laughs) every time we go camping or or go on hikes out here um, on Vancouver Island. But it is a little different uh, with cougars. We don't know why. Scientists don't know why. But there is something about a child's size and erratic quick movements which are an attractant for uh, for cougars mountain lions so it's yeah for some reason high-pitched voices uh, screaming erratic uh, fast movements it, it's almost like a at, the, at this point if I had to draw an analogy like a, a cat and mouse uh, kind of concept and so yes with with children if you are recreating in cougar country um you it is wise to keep uh children near not not to be paranoid i'm not trying to promote fear here but there is there is some extra caution and, and awareness that should be um implemented i believe the that children should be taught how to make themselves larger they should be taught how to use um camping gear such as um you know, uh, marshmallow sticks and things like that as weapons. If they if they had to, they should be taught how to make themselves bigger, how to use their backpack or sleeping bag um, as uh, as a buffer uh, between them and an animal. You know, things like this. So there are some extra precautions and awareness and and training that I think our children should have when we are camping and recreating in, in cougar country. And it's um, it is because of those. Um, differences between a, a bear and a, and a cougar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A bear isn't naturally attracted to um, high-pitched uh, voices and erratic movement. In fact, it's the opposite for yeah. a bear. But for some reason, um, a, the cougar's curiosity is peaked, and it can, it can lead after a time of watching to, to an opportunistic um, attempt to uh, attack or grab or engage with the child. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, And let's talk about being outdoors. This is, I think, the biggest one. The backyard stuff, we all know the absolute biggest thing is the attractants. Hands down, bar none. Uh, Get rid of the attractants and you'll resolve a lot of potential issues. But when we are out, if we are hiking, if I come to Vancouver Island and you and I go on a romantic walk in the woods and a cougar jumps out and bites your head off, and I'm left alone with the cougar and Bryce's body without a head, what should I do? What should people be doing to uh, sort of, in a case where they encounter a cougar, maybe not with your dead body, but just in general? Well, I was going to say, I can't answer because I have no head now. (laughs) (laughs) In this this story, uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you what to do. But no, uh, yeah, a little dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have a little bit of drama now and then. You know, I wrote a blog on uh, cougar safety. It's it's up on my website. I think it was the last blog that was published up there just to try to help inform um, and educate uh, the public as we go into this uh, 
summer and it was published actually in the local paper so it was circulated throughout the north island i think about over 3000 homes got a copy so there was excellent some, there's some good information in there and uh yeah with a cougar making yourself as big as possible talking in a calm clear voice not turning your back stepping back slowly telling it to go away if you do have to fight fight back and fight hard sticks rocks fists these are all important uh points for should you find yourself in the highly unlikely event i sound like an airplane announcer here should you find yourself in the highly unlikely event that you're attacked by a cougar today but um but yeah the there are some points that are important to keep in, in the back of your mind and one of them is um is fight back and it's a little bit against our um nature because as children we're taught to play dead with bears so yeah. even even now uh but that is not the case with uh with cougars and it is important uh in the highly unlikely event that you find yourself in a negative encounter with one of these gorgeous animals it is important to uh fight back when we but, are out oh sorry Continue. but again that's not to promote fear it is possible to to it is possible that through this summer you may see a cougar if you're recreating in the outdoors, especially in, in BC. And just because you see one, although that also is highly unlikely, but it, it doesn't mean that you're at risk. I, I want to be careful that I'm not promoting a fear of the animal. It's just there are some safety points to be aware of if Absolutely. you do have an interaction. Yeah. And I think that's true of any wildlife. Um, again, living in and around the city of Toronto uh, all my life, like uh, a raccoon in the right situation can cause you problems. So it's, it's this People, sort of other, other animals, you know, I don't, you know, this, we, we talk about wildlife, but like, I don't, I don't let my five-year-old daughter talk to a stranger until I know who they are. True. That's not because I don't trust people. It's just because I might not trust that one. I don't know yet. <laughs> it's yeah. the same thing with going into a neighbor's house or a friend's house and they got a new dog. I'm not going to let my, five-year-old girl jump on his tail or try to feed him until I know sort of what that behavior is. So I think there's just some general um, awareness um, that wildlife shares the land base. Expect wildlife. Um, it is, well, it is, on, well, most of us will go through our lives without ever seeing a cougar. They are to be expected. They live here too. And so being aware of their behaviors and being aware of uh, information that can help us have a safe and a safe encounter or a safe sighting and leave everybody untouched and unharmed. I think that's, that's just good advice. The last thing I want to ask when we talk about, and I, I experienced this when I was out with my little brother uh, doing some wildlife photography a week or two back. And we were in, in an area where I knew there had been coyotes sighted regularly and I said something that had been told to me that I always thought was really interesting is when you're out and walking around and you see a coyote briefly, you see a flash of a coyote or you see one up on the path, you can know that that coyote or any others in the area probably saw you long before you saw them. Um, you know, they are typically much more aware of their surroundings, although we still can surprise them. But with raccoons, bears, possums, coyotes, foxes, birds, all kinds of animals that I've encountered in my time. 
most of them don't want anything to do with me. They see me and they go, nope, and turn and go the other way. Cougars are different. So mm-hmm. cougars are attracted to sound. And so if they, if they don't have the ability to watch, from, and they like watching their surroundings. So when you do encounter or sight a cougar, usually it's because they're watching and people feel watched and then they feel afraid. But watching is quite normal behavior for a cougar and typically watching from a, a, a high vantage point. Now, having said that, if they are on a, a typical behavior of a cougar, though, if they are on the trail uh, with you or are sharing a, a territory with you while you're recreating, would actually be to seek out the sound and verify it for themselves. They are curious that way. So unlike other species of wildlife that actually just runs or, mm-hmm. or leaves or stays away, it's, it's, it can be a little bit of the opposite with the cougar. Well, until they know you're human, they'll actually seek out to watch you for a bit and see what's going on. That's that doesn't mean that they're stalking you. That doesn't mean they're hunting you. It's just their curiosity because you're in their hunting territory. And until they verify that you're human, they, they may watch you for a bit. Well, that's the same and, as a house uh, cat, realistically, is, hey, what's that sound? I'm going to go see what it is. It's very similar. It's very similar behavior. Yeah. So. I guess, though, most house cats aren't 100 pounds. Yeah, well, there's that difference, too. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, ears up, uh, you know, ears up, shoulders up, head high, watching. This is normal. Ears down to the back, slumped shoulders, like a stalking pose. That's stalking behavior. And there is a difference. Mm-hmm. And and so again, becoming familiar with different behavioral traits of the animal, so you know what type of behavior you're witnessing when you're in the um, when you are recreating outdoors. If you do have uh, are fortunate enough to um, sight uh, a cougar or uh, or have an encounter with one, uh, again, understanding more about this animal is is good for everybody involved. I have been comparing or using my experiences with various other wildlife to try and understand cougars more in our conversation. And while there are, I'd say, a lot of differences between cougars and some of the other animals I'm used to um, talking about or have encountered, the similarity that really hits home for me is the same lesson that this is their house that we're in and that our fence is meaningless to them. Um, they're going to follow their noses. They're going to try and live their lives. They're going to raise their young. And ultimately it comes down to, as you say, expecting that they are around and really just respecting that they are there, that this is also their home. And that really feels Mm -hmm. just, it, it is funny how different they are yet, how similar that theme is in how we interact and live Mm -hmm. among cougars. Yeah. You know, I think that's the, that's the takeaway message, you know, expect wildlife. And so if we're expecting wildlife, uh, you know, or in this case, <laughs> cougars, you know, what, what obligations do we have? And the obligation we have is if we're going to expect wildlife, then we have an obligation to be informed. And if we have an obligation to be informed, then the government has an obligation to make sure that information is readily and mm-hmm. easily accessible. And I think um, those three things combined, you know, expectation, expect it, you know, being informed, get the information you need to, to recreate uh, safely and have a positive experience and ensuring that that information that we need is easily and readily accessible or sort of the, the triangle of, of being able to overcome some of the stigmas associated with, um, 
the cougar being elusiveness and and its um, predatory traits. You can learn more about Bryce and read his thoughts on issues such as wildlife management and coexistence at BryceCastEvent.ca. That's it for now, folks. I want to thank all of you for listening and Bryce for joining me again. Remember to get your iTunes reviews posted and shared for your chance to win a Defender Radio shirt. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio or on Instagram at Howie Michael to see what I'm up to and find out more about upcoming contests, cute pictures of my puppies, and more. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.